0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth
1: Mike? Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi,
0: we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast.
1: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got the songwriters behind some of the most tuneful tunes in indie rock. One with a couple of decades under his belt, the other two relatively newer to the game. A.C. Newman, along with Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce. Now, Stokes and Pierce are the core of the New Zealand band The Beths. She sings and plays guitar, he plays guitar and engineers their fabulous records. Their third and latest, Expert in a Dying Field, was one of 2022's best. And you don't have to take my word for it, it made tons of those best-of-the-year lists. Stokes is a fabulous lyricist and expressive singer. She's one of those people whose semi-deadpan actually says quite a lot. The songs are melancholy and spunky and sort of in the tradition of some great late 90s, early aughts indie rock like Superchunk or Rilo Kiley. Maybe it's no surprise that some big bands that broke out in that era, like Death Cab for Cutie and The National, have taken the Beths out on tour recently. Check out a little bit of the title track from Expert in a Dying Field right here and catch the Beths on tour all over the world this summer. Another Beth's admirer who got his start in the early aughts is A.C. Newman, who's best known as the singer and chief songwriter for the New Pornographers. That Canadian band started out as a sort of supergroup consisting of Newman and Nico Case alongside Dan Behar and John Collins of Destroyer, but over the years it's really become a vehicle for Newman's incredibly melodic songs. The band is on tour now behind their ninth album. The slightly mellower, though no less engaging, continue as a guest. And yes, both the current live lineup and the record still feature Nico Case. In the past, she's had to split time with her vibrant solo career. Check out a little bit of the song Really, Really Light from Continue as a Guest. In this conversation, Newman, Stokes, and Pierce, who were only admirers beforehand, not yet acquaintances, talk about the early days of these things called websites, blowing your life savings to go on tour, government arts grants that help bands do bigger things, and when doing it yourself just becomes too tough. Also, Newman gives some solid life and career advice. Just do what you think is cool. Enjoy. How
0: old is your son?
2: He's 11. It's funny. The yesterday he asked me the weirdest question. He, we were just driving in the car, and he said, "Do you like being a songwriter?" And I'm well. like, "I'm like, why? Why do you ask?" And he's like, "And he's like, well, you know, sometimes you come back from your studio, and you just seem kind of stressed out." And I said, <laughs> and, "And I said, like, yeah, I get. Of course I do. I mean, the fact that I do it means I love it. But yeah, you know, trying to explain to him that things you love sometimes they're harder because you love them."
0: yeah yeah it's things you care about (laughs) have the capacity to to make you pretty stressed out
2: and also like uh we have a job where there is no answer i tried explaining that to a contractor once i love painting because i can paint a room and just be careful and spend a day doing a good job and at the end of it go look i did it perfectly what a great job but it's hard to do that with a song because you you don't know what it's supposed to be
0: also, I think well, the when the walls are painted, I guess you, you kind of know when you're finished. Yeah, maybe I'm
2: completely misunderstanding it. <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of angry.
0: Angry emails from painters <laughs> being like, you don't understand yes. my art.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know nothing of my work.
0: How do you normally know when you're finished? Or like, do you, do you feel like there's a f- finished? Or, or do you kind of just go like, we're stopping here?
2: There was a point in our last record where I just gave all our songs to our management and I realized I was just tired of working on it. Like, like I was just like, I don't fucking know here. Here it is. I guess this is it. And then they, you know, they listened to it and they basically said the songs are good, but it doesn't sound finished. And initially I was mad. Like, what the fuck do you mean? And then I realized, oh, right. You know, they were right. And and then and then I went I went back and I finished it. And Now I go back and I listen to those versions. And I think, thank God we didn't release it like that. Sometimes it's helpful to have somebody to tell you that. Like sometimes you hate their guts for a few days, (laughs) but um, you know, it's good to have somebody say, yeah, this
0: doesn't feel right. Was it like arrangement stuff, like production stuff? Was it writing? For me, I think it's all the same thing.
2: I think writing and arranging and producing and
0: mixing, they're
2: all of a piece, you know? And sometimes you're like, it's not until you've pushed every level to the finished moment where you go there, it's done. The song is Mm. done. Until then it's fair game. You know, until then you can tear it apart at will. You can get mad at it and do whatever you feel like. Scrap it and start again. What's it like for you? Is it a lot of it in the studio, or do you, the four of you, just practice and just get a live performance?
3: Well, our roles are a bit more clearly delineated, or something, you know, like because uh, like Liz will
0: easily write.
3: Liz will write a song. It's uh, all of these things seem so trite to say now because I think <laughs> it is much more mature view to say that it's all part of the one process, but. You know, there's a point where Liz has a demo that's just a bedroom demo that is her playing a guitar and some backing vocals, perhaps, and that feels to us like the song. And then we feel like, you know, it's time to write the guitar parts and write the drum parts.
0: It feels like it's quite an old fashioned, I think, way of thinking about songs, which I think comes from the way that we kind of like all studied music. But it was like this and the song is like the lead sheet where it's like, (laughs) this is Mm -hmm. the song. Or it's like yeah. the chords and the melody and the words or whatever. And then you like arrange the song, <laughs> the song yes. into a, an, an arrangement or something.
3: But it works because there's a simplicity yeah. that comes from that as well. There's a simplistic way of playing the song that kind of comes through from that, which is attractive, I think.
0: I was doing a bunch of air quotes just then. and you, no. <laughs> they, don't, they don't work in audio. I got Yeah, it's true. Air quote.
2: Yeah. Just make sure to just mention it whenever you're doing one. Yeah. Like, air quote. I just do like a
0: silly voice. Yes.
2: It'll work. <laughs> I think for a lot of bands, like you start out you'd being more of a band where like you have your songs and then, you know, you're a band and then years pass. And I think it gets weirder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when you're starting out, you can record your first album very quickly. You know, you can go into a studio and knock it out in two or three days. And then all of a sudden, 10 years pass and you're like, why are we spending six months on our album?
0: This is so strange. We have like the exact opposite view of what, of what a first album is like.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yours took a long time. We were like a hobby band, you know, so we we were just like working our stuff out on weekends or like one evening a week or something like that. And we often reminisce about the feeling of not having any deadline or ambition. (laughs) Well, actually, to me,
2: when I think back on it, we were kind of the exact same thing. (laughs) You know, it it used to just feel like a club. It used to just feel like this weird little club and we we make music in the club. And then... Maybe, maybe like us, you are you were shocked to find that other people, you know, other people started listening. I mean, were you were you shocked? I mean, was was the response to your first record pretty immediate?
0: Yeah, it was it was kind of wild. Like we'd been a band for a long time and we played a lot, like in Auckland, <laughs> Auckland, New Zealand. Like for like mm-hmm. two or three years we just played in Auckland, New Zealand and sometimes in like Wellington or Christchurch. But um mm-hmm. we just played, you know, like once a month at the Whammy Bar. <laughs> and mm-hmm. It was pretty awesome. Like we released our first EP or whatever, and like it was strange to start to see you would start to see people who you don't know (laughs) at the shows. Yeah, like oh, how did how do you how do these people know these songs? Like, and that was just in New Zealand for like a really long time because I guess Mm -hmm. because it's so isolated, it's like if you were at the same level and you lived in I don't know like Cleveland, you you would probably start doing like little tours, little like playing out of town more and like dipping your toe in. But just like it's just quite hard to do that when you live in such a isolated place. Did your first record come out was like 2000?
2: Yeah, it was the end, it was the very end of 2000, yeah.
0: Yeah, because our first record was, uh, our first EP was 2016, first album 2018, and it just like, we have a real like curiosity for the music that was made around that kind of like turn of the millennium time, because it was, I guess, an interesting time for, it was like CDs were like on the way out, like bedroom recording was like not at its like, like full peak, like what was like early Pro Tools or something was kind of a thing. and.
3: Yeah, like it, the whole format of everything was change, changing. Was just like changing at that a lot. It felt, feels yeah. like from from a viewing it from afar, it just seems like a like people in the two thousands were probably being sold the line that oh, you can do this at home and you can kind of um, DIY a record in a way that you've never been able to do before. But then the reality of doing that appears so difficult, and every album from that from a couple of years of ninety nine to two thousand one just tends to have like this incredible story about. trials it took to get it made unless it was made in a big studio perhaps god for years we recorded in apartments (laughs) like we did
2: we just recorded wherever wherever we could our second album we went into a big studio i think we went you know we went into a studio that was 500 dollars a day you know for whatever 10 days or two weeks you know but that was when we were on matador by then so we had you know we had some we had some money to record with but uh the first record was completely on spec. Like, I mean, not even spec. Like, our bass player John was recording it, and if he had anything else to do that paid, it was like, okay, well, I guess do that <laughs> because we're not we're we're not paying you. You know, I think what's interesting about the, the records from that time, it was like it was when people, I think, figured out how to fake it. You know, like mm. like. Like, you know, in the eighties and nineties, there were like lo fi records, you know. There was there was Guided by Voices and Sebado, and they all sounded like they were recorded on a four track. But then, you know, then I think bands start bands like the Shin start showing up where it's kind of it's kind of home recorded, but it also sounds amazing, <laughs> you know. Uh, yes. And, and when you and when you hear you hear the story. I mean, of course, they did work with Phil There was a, you know, it wasn't all done at home, but yeah, it was it was an interesting. Time to be around because I felt like I got to be part of a little bit of a gold rush. It was just a good time to be a band like us. The weirdest thing I remember was that I remember being asked to do an interview for a website. And I remember thinking that was the lowest form of journalism. Like, (laughs) like, like, really, we're going to do an interview with a website that that felt like that felt like a like a photocopied zine. And then yeah. I was like, "Oh, oh, it's a website called Pitchfork. Okay, I'll do this interview with Pitchfork." And then a year or two later, all of a sudden, that's all there is. You know, yeah. all of a, all of a sudden, music websites are everything, and all of a sudden, like the magazines don't don't matter. And now I don't know what the hell is going
3: on. Honestly. Now you, know you look back I, on those <laughs> moments, you think, "What what is the internet today? It's just social media, and like if yeah. there's anything that's a real website, it's like." Wow, you made your own website? What why did
2: you do that? <laughs> I've been doing interviews thinking I've never heard of this podcast, but what does that mean? It might be the biggest podcast in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't
0: Yeah, like this one. It's probably the biggest podcast in the world. Exciting.
2: I mean, the industry's changed, but I think you're used to it, you know, because you showed up, you showed up in
0: 2016.
2: So, you're kind of used to it
0: things are a lot more, s- have gotten kind of like stable in the weird way that they are, which is like not great. Like, because, you know, music journalism is in a weird spot, but it's like, it's been in this weird spot now for like 10 years or something. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's, whereas like, yeah, it feels like everything was changing at that time. And even in the way that, like you say that you were a band for a long time, but then you went in and like did, you know, knocked out the album very quickly. And it's like, mm-hmm. I guess just because like we took a long time because we kind of had the luxury to because Jonathan was the one who recorded it. And like, mm-hmm. we have this kind of like, project studio situation so you could kind of like yeah just go in all the time and keep working on it we were building the songs over a long period of time
2: you got to have the engineer in the band it's incredibly helpful
0: it's an incredible (laughs) (laughs) hack.
2: yes it it really is so do you feel like there was a was there a point where you feel like you you were kind of moving out of new zealand i remember there was a kind of kind of organic groundswell around you like i remember people just started writing me randomly and going have you heard this band the best i really think i really think you'd like them and i was like, okay i'll check them out people were beginning to notice you but you know but do you know why it happened you know why people started talking like did you get a label here
0: yeah so we uh, we started off like in like late 2017 we had we were finishing off the record and we kind of decided that it was like pretty good (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and that we were gonna this was our first album that we were gonna just like Try and do it like a big international tour, like just DIY mm. kind of booking, and try and you know get a release on a label in the states if we could, just like a small indie label. And we ended up, I did a whole bunch of like emailing while Jonathan was mixing. Mm-hmm. I was emailing labels, and I was trying to book like a kind of DIY tour of the UK and Europe and the states if we could, and like organizing a visa. Like it's it's very expensive to get a visa to play in the United States. Oh yeah, yeah. It's ten thousand New Zealand dollars at the time. It's 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 more now, but um, that's like was it like. Seven thousand USD. It's like it was a
2: lot. Oh yeah, we have we dealt with that for years. I mean, being a Canadian band, um, gosh, where like your biggest market is just next door, but yeah, it's it's a huge hassle.
3: Totally. totally. So yeah, we were kind of like trying to finish this record, and then I d- I don't think anyone emailed you back. No. <laughs> Until the one person does, and that person turns out to be Car Park, who are absolute angels who we lo- love working with, Car Park Records. And they they had a New Zealand connection already, and it was probably because of that that we ended up getting it like properly getting to meet them and talk about releasing music with them. Um, yeah. But
0: uh, you know, Liz's like
3: work doing a DIY booking diy tours was really kind of what kicked things off because we we knew and what we like what we always wanted to do was play shows and show people that we could be a good band you know in person mm-hmm. and um because that's what we really love doing like playing shows and playing our instruments is the most fun thing in the world so we just went and mm-hmm. um played a couple of small diy tours but fortunately we had car help by that time and sort of things like outstripped our ambitions quite quickly, you
2: know. Were there any um were there any government grants from New Zealand? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I was I was thinking, yeah, it was the same with us.
0: What's the Canadian grant situation like?
2: Uh it was it's really good. I felt like we almost abused the system. I mean, we played Australia and New Zealand like four times, you know, and that's because, you know, we our shows were our shows did well, but not enough to fly seven people across the world you know and and mm-hmm. up and all over australia yeah it's a i mean it's amazing it's helped so many canadian bands
3: well yeah because we kind of costed it out for ourselves and worked out that we needed to save up about thirty thousand new zealand dollars which would be quite a lot but like i guess yeah 21 you know so yeah, we, we, were, we were working day jobs and stuff in our mid-20s and we, mm-hmm. we we had we had a while to plan this stuff out so we between Liz and I, like being a, I think the other like killer advantage is being a couple in a band, right? Mm-hmm. It has yeah. its, has its difficulties, and there's famous examples of it going wrong. But when it goes right, it's amazingly effective. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you could decide as a couple to blow your life savings on a tour. <laughs> yeah,
3: it was a group choice. But you talk, the, you um, talked it out. The grant thing it just mean meant that like by the time we'd done losing all of our money on that first tour we didn't have to immediately come home and work day jobs again to save up for the next one we could like roll into another into another one
2: I remember when we made we made our first demo which is the first four songs from our record and I had friends at Matador Records and I remember I gave it to them and they listened to it and they liked it um but they they didn't sign us and I realized years later that they wanted to see if we were going to become a real band and when we put out our record and toured it they saw oh they're a real band now so we're going to sign them
0: it's just like a show of intent it's like we, yeah, we yeah. mean to do this and we will we will do it however we can
2: <laughs> it's like you got to prove that you've got your you know stick to itiveness but i really think that's the case like you know if somebody's going to put out your record they want to know that you're going to go out and tour it
0: yeah, definitely. I think at the at the level that we're at anyway, I guess with like being a touring band or something, which feels like it's kind of its own ecosystem <laughs> of of mm-hmm. making music. Because I guess there's because that's not necessarily the case, right? Like now if you if you want to be making music, you can kind of just make it and people might like it all over the world. And that's kind of sweet. And then you kind of have to like build if you want to tour, you can and you can kind of build from there. But it's like this weird, um, I don't know, upside down way of, of working. I mean,
2: when was the last time you played in America?
0: We just got back from a tour uh, like a couple weeks ago there. So we were there for about six weeks, five weeks.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, is that was that with Death Cab?
0: No, that was just a, a headline tour for the Xperia okay. album album uh, September last year.
2: Okay, awesome. Where did you play in New York?
0: Uh, Brooklyn Steel.
2: Oh, awesome. Well, that's amazing. So you're doing incredibly well.
3: (laughs) It was a good tour. We felt great about it. It really was like pinch me kind of at several moments. You know, there was lots of lots and lots of good moments on that tour.
2: I could probably guess at half the venues you played every town. Yeah, this is a fun circuit.
3: we played this game before. Did you play Union Transfer in Philadelphia? We did. We played Talia Hall in in, uh, Chicago. That's a great venue. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I I love that
3: place. Yeah, that was great.
0: First Avenue in Minneapolis was cool.
2: First (laughs) Avenue is such a a legendary venue. Oh, my
0: gosh. I was like, I wonder if Prince will be there (laughs) in spirit.
2: (laughs) He used to show up, like, occasionally and just with his guitar and play with a band that he liked. I mean, not not that often, but... um, there used to be a print store right by First Avenue but closed. What did they sell? Just print stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you had you had to move through a purple curtain and then all Ugh. the emplo- all the employees looked like they were in the revolution. They were all dressed in like, you know,
0: satin or whatever, velour. Amazing. Yeah.
2: But I guess not enough people were buying print stuff at the print store.
0: Yeah. Maybe Prince was the biggest <laughs> customer of the print store. And then he, <laughs> and then he, and then he died and then it was really hot. Uh, well, we had to Postpone our Minneapolis show this time because um, there was a big, giant snowstorm like in the, in like February or no, it was yeah late February, early March, and so we had to postpone it to the end of the tour and do like one one flight date.
3: So we got stuck in Bismarck, North Dakota, for like, three days. Uh, they closed the interstates, and we were in Holiday Inn Hellscape, where there's yeah there's no food and there's just Holiday Four Courts, uh, Holiday Inn Four Courts everywhere you look. Yeah, that is. Three quarters of America,
2: at least right. three quarters.
0: We haven't done that many bus tours. So like normally we're in a van and so you're a bit more agile. And you can kind of like, if you're staying in a small town, you can find the cool thing yeah. and go see it or something like that. But you know, when you're in the bus, it's like the bus is parked in the airport hotel district and yeah. <laughs> you can walk to an olive garden.
3: <laughs> was this your first bus tour? It was a second bus tour, but... Uh... Uh, it was the first one where we really owned it. The, f- the 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 first bus tour was more like a COVID prevention bus tour. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked. It was fine. Yeah. Oh, you haven't got it yet.
2: Oh, oh we've, had, we've it.
0: had it. We had it. No, the okay. next tour in the UK that was not a COVID bus tour.
3: It gets everybody eventually. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. It was. That was. That was a frustrating time.
3: <laughs> How good is it touring when you don't have to worry about COVID anymore? It's so great.
0: Well, you still have to worry about COVID.
3: oh people are still getting it my god
2: yeah i got i got it last september actually i actually got it at a roxy music concert so i kind of felt like was it worth it it? i don't know (laughs) like i i i had to go see them though so i felt like well if you're gonna get covid somewhere i guess you might as well do it at a roxy music concert
0: yeah (sighs) the the trade-off you like being on the bus oh i really like being on the bus (laughs) i love like sleeping in Instead of uh, the the old like getting back to the you know hotel and loading out at 1.32 a.m. and then leaving again at eight a.m.
2: because some people can't sleep on the bus they're too terrified
0: yeah it's not great sleep but it just gives you a lot more time I think during the day it's really nice waking up in a city like and not you know arriving in the city just to have a sound shake and having lunch at yeah. a gas station yeah it's
2: it's a very different experience when you just magically show up you know yeah. in different towns like you go to bed and it's like now I'm in this town yeah I was shocked at how quickly I got used to it. Like I used to dream about being on a bus and then an hour into being on the bus I thought, "Well, I'm a bus guy now." Like it just yeah. felt it felt absolutely normal. We used to rent an RV, which was ah. which is crazy to think about it. Um but that was kind of fun. It was like halfway to a bus. But it's insane trying to drive a driving an RV through the streets of New York City is just insane. Like I can't believe we did it, but we did it.
0: Awesome. We never thought of doing that.
2: You have to get a bit more inventive when you've got seven plus people, I guess. Yeah. Do you have a pretty skeleton crew, like the four of you, and then like two or
3: three people? On the bus tour, we do. I mean, we, when we're in a van tour, we keep we keep it even more slick. We're still pretty used to the DIY to to managing side of things and taking care of ourselves. And
0: yeah, we've mm-hmm.
3: we've we've got a full time front of house, and and these days it makes a lot of sense to have a merch person as well. Mm-hmm. But we're pretty protective over setting our own uh, call times and stuff like that <laughs> so yeah it's quite a, kind of nice to still be the boss of that stuff for the time being so you manage
2: yourselves you don't have a manager
0: we have managers um and, okay but we just don't take a tour manager on the road so we have um someone who works at our management who like advances everything puts it all in master tour and then we just check master tour and work out when to leave and how to get to the airport Blah blah blah. blah all that
2: stuff are we talking about the most boring part of being in <laughs> being in a band oh man so, you, but guys, you
0: must say the same things Uh man our
2: our band was just chaos like we were diy for years but hmm. it was not working like we we wanted to be a diy but at some point it just got it just got kind of ugly and it sucks when there are you're having business problems and it really strikes at the core of your band you know like there should be other people worrying about the money. It shouldn't be like band members, you know, butting heads about things. We did like eight or 10 years, like DIY. And then I think I just broke. It's like, we have to have a manager. I can't do this anymore. There were some parts that I could do by myself. Like, you know, I write most of the songs, So I thought, okay, well, I can I can deal with that myself. But I mean, it's... Especially the way the music industry is now. Like, yeah, you want to be as DIY as possible because why have, you know, why have a lot of hands taking that that money that's getting harder and harder to get, you know? It sounds like you have it figured out.
0: Yeah, we have a really nice team. We really like our managers. We've been working with them for a long time. They're from Perth. Oh, <laughs> I feel like there's a cool. connection to being from an isolated place.
2: Yes. Um, Do you have American managers or just your managers in Perth?
0: They live in LA, so there are American managers now. Oh, okay. They've gone full LA. Yeah, it's an important relationship, I feel like. It's, It's a super intimate one. We talk to them every single day, and, you know, there's, well, like, over email, and it's just, you're talking about money, you're talking about, like, what your plans are. You have to have a lot of trust there, and I feel like it's a relationship that, like, there are so many horror stories of that trust being, like, abused.
2: I really like our manager, and our lawyer who we'd been with for years and years, I remember what she said to me. She said, like, she said, Carl, 80% of managers just don't do anything for you. You know, like, you will you'll just make the same amount of money. 15% of them, you'll make less money because you have a manager. And then she said, they're like 5% that could actually do things for you. And she said, I think, I think you found one of the 5% that can actually help you. It was interesting to have a lawyer
3: say that to me, like, yeah, most managers are pretty useless, you know, totally. There are those people around who are just central to every to every artist it's It's kind of a shock when you go and go out on the road and realize just how small the um the club is It, it speaks to the truth of some of these slightly apocryphal stories of like um you know the helicopter was it a helicopter or a light plane crash where Buddy Holly died and, and um, mm-hmm. the Big Bopper and and a, and a few others. And it's like, well, it's only two or three people, but actually that's a total tragedy because mm-hmm. the amount of effective people in the business is actually shockingly small. And there's people yeah. who work at the intersection of all of them. And a few of those people who we, we figured out pretty early on we could trust Mm-hmm. At the time we were meeting, our manager said a very similar thing. And it was, it was almost even more poignant because the person we trusted more than anyone said, who, who was a young woman in the business, and she said, this guy I really trust. It was a very big recommendation for us. So, yeah, it's, um, we d- didn't want managers when they came along. We, we sort of thought we didn't need it for, and we figured we could probably carry on for a year or, or, or two years without, without management.
2: It's kind of a good problem to be at a point where you're like, you know, things are, yeah, our band is getting big enough that maybe we need some help here. It's like finding your life partner. It's like we looked for years, but we finally found it. We found our manager that we trust. I mean, everybody you work with, labels or managers or the people you play in a band with, there is, it's kind of an intimate thing there. You're letting people in in ways that, you know, you wouldn't normally
0: It feels like a marriage. It's like, we are in this together for the long haul. We need to make sure that everybody is happy.
2: I still feel weird, like writing a song and like presenting it, presenting it to your friends. And you know, it's good. It's good when you've been working with people long enough that you can do that. And you can go here, here here's my new song. People you trust enough that if they say, I don't know, I don't like this one. Like you'd go, okay. No, I, I, I trust you. You know, we're, We've been through it enough. Or when you can have heated arguments with people, but it never gets personal. You know, like when when you can argue over music, but it, it it's just, it's friendly. Yeah. Even if you're saying you're crazy. No, you're completely wrong. But because you've, you know, you've known each other so long, you've done it for so long, you can have those conversations. It's a,
3: it's a rare thing. We don't argue a lot, but I think that's just New Zealanders. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> we're like she- got
2: she-
3: so conflict averse
2: Hey, I mean, I'm Canadian. We have the same we have the same rep. Yeah. You know, every we're known for apologizing constantly. So yeah, understood, yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's Teen Dance Ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic Grassroots activism and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to "Let the Kids Dance" from KUOW and the NPR Network.
3: So we've put out our third record just about six or nine months ago, or something like that, mm-hmm. and um, done a bunch of touring of it. But still got still got a really big year planned ahead of us with lots lots more touring and stuff. And so you're coming back here. Yeah, we're coming back. We're doing that tour with Death Cab that you, that you sort oh, of okay. mentioned. Oh, so, okay.
2: So so it hasn't happened yet. Okay.
3: No, no, no. Yeah, we're doing that. We're doing a tour with the National. We're doing a number oh. of smaller summer festivals, that sort of thing. Oh, um, that's amazing. So we're in the, the States quite a lot. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit that I don't think we're in Canada again this year well neither neither am i yeah <laughs>
2: we're out for five weeks and we we only have one canadian show and we're from canada
3: yeah, right. so it's just a funny point in the cycle you know the cycle of like uh, album and touring and then and then really like scratching your head and wondering what to do next until it's obvious because something happens you know because like you write a bunch of songs and it's obvious you need to rehearse and record them or you know another big tour offer comes up and it's obvious you need to something like that. But, you know, there's a period where it's not very obvious. And I just wondered, what do you do in that period? Do you know the feeling I'm talking about where you don't know what the next move is? And do you, are you very good at imagining what the next moves are <laughs> or dreaming? Like, do you actively dream about what you want to do next and in, in your wildest dreams and then try to make it happen? Or or do you just sort of, are you more relaxed about letting things happen? Or does this come from the group? My God, I think the weird thing about our
2: band is like, although we, be- we became a real band. We started out as a part time band, you know? And to a certain degree, we're 20 years later, we're still kind of a part time band, except, you know, it's, I mean, especially for me, I, you know, because I'm the main songwriter and, you know, and there's passive income just from writing songs, you know, that has become a decent career for me. But it's always been hard to plan. Like Nico having her separate career, it was always like, when can we get Nico? Like, in the year 2004, we played two shows. Like, we just put out a record that was like, you know, just got a ton of attention, but we toured it for a month, and it was like, well, I guess that's it. Mm, Nico, yeah. You know, Nico's gone. I put out a solo album just because I had to do something. The main reason I put out a solo album, because I thought, I guess I should do
3: something, <laughs> because I'm not doing anything this year with the band. We know that feeling, too, where you're just... um. You're available an opportunity comes up and you just do it and you don't really think about it too much. It's not very often that you have those moments where you can really like think and reflect and plan. You've got to be practical and and just those moments in life just don't come up that often.
2: You're doing some shows with Death Cab and The National and I mean, and that is, that's stuff you can't really plan for, you know, like yeah. you didn't submit your resume, you know, they asked you to do them. There's an element where I just have to let things happen, you know, like. Yes. And, and and it's it's maddening because I try and explain it to people sometimes where like, like I get these regular checks from songwriting, but if they suddenly became zero, there's nothing we could do about it. <laughs> you know, like if somebody said, sorry, your songs are worth zero now, like who are you going to go to? Like we can we can try and be as proactive as possible. And that's why you try to make the best record. You try to go on tour. You try and get the best manager and, you know, and things then things do well. It's a terrible answer. Like, yeah, twenty years later, I'm I, all I have to say is it's a crapshoot. It's a bingo game, you know. Like, like we used to do a ton of licensing, you know, to movies and TV and video games. And people ask me like, "Well, how did you get that?" And I just say, "Well, it fell from the sky," you know. It mm-hmm. just happened. Whenever I've tried to get anything, whenever I've thought, "Oh, I'm gonna really work at it," nothing ever came of it. It always just... It always just fell from the sky.
0: The thing that you have control over is writing good music. Yeah. Making making as good music as you can. That's like the one thing that you have that feels like you have proper control over.
2: <laughs> I think what I love about making music is that there are so many things that you have no control over, but you can you can go in and, pl- and play your music and if it's bothering you, you can fix it. I think that might be, you know, what draws me to it. Like you can't control over how many people buy your record. You can't you can't decide how many tickets you sell, you know. I'm just shocked to be here. I've been looking over my shoulder for 20 years. Like, you know, I don't know, maybe you felt the same, but did you feel the same way when you when you first got attention? Did you think people aren't gonna like our next record?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> because it happens, you know, sometimes a band puts out one record and then people people lose interest. Yeah.
0: We second record was a crapshoot. Also, the second record came out in July of twenty twenty. So like Oh yeah. Already it was kind of like this is not ideal.
3: <laughs> In some ways, it was kind of galvanizing because we yeah. were like, well,
0: <laughs> the world is ending.
3: Everyone else <laughs> has decided that they're going to hold to their records. And, and we just can kind of imagine how that's going to go. And it's going to be really hard. So let's just do it anyway. Let's put a record out mid-COVID and just see what that feels like. That must have been great for your last tour. You know, because you're you
2: are essentially touring three albums, you know.
3: because
2: yeah, because a a lot of people probably missed the boat on your first record. Your second record comes out when there's no touring. And so, like people who've become fans of yours over the last five or six years, you know. Yeah, yeah. A few months ago it's probably the first chance to see you. And that was yeah, you you had five years
0: to build up a fan base. Build up a pressure. Yeah. It's good. But yeah, but definitely that's like and that second record feeling was very stressful. Third record felt like a bit less stressful, I guess, because you kind of like we've done the difficult second record. Yeah, and like thinking about a fourth album is kind of interesting now. Like I'm curious because you've made how many? Like eight, nine?
2: Nine. Our ninth record just came
3: out. It's so great. That's the dream.
0: Like, is it le- Does it feel like less pressure? Because it's just it, it feels like it, it. just feels like you have a body of work, and you're like this. This entire album doesn't fully define us or something in the way that the second album feels like it kind of does.
2: I think I have a good attitude towards it. Like there's. Is- there's a feeling of like kind of less pressure because, you know, like I think there's a point, maybe you're in that point right now, you're in that point where you start thinking, or maybe people are telling you like, oh, you could get really big, especially for us in say 2005, like all the bands around us were getting huge, you know, like bands like Death Cab, like the National, like the Shins or Arcade Fire, like it felt like, it, like so many bands that we'd passed, we'd cross paths with through the years, or Spoon, like they were all getting super big. So there was a sense of people kind of expected that of us, but it's a lot of pressure, and uh, and I, I, I hated to be the one going, yeah, I don't see it happening, you guys. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't see us being the next Arcade Fire. Was it ever tempting to be like, I'm going to try and write an album that's going to make us, that's going to make us big, or something like that?
2: No, because I thought the moment i try and do that, I felt like that would be the most massive fail of my life. Trying to chase what I think people want to hear. Like, I just, Mm. I I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just, I just absolutely couldn't. Like, from, from the beginning up to now, I think I've thought to myself, like, just do what you think is cool. Like the first record, we went from completely unknown to being a buzz band because we made a record that I thought was cool. So I thought, why not continue with that? Like, so at the heart of it, just every decision you make in the studio, just think, well, what do you think is good? Not what do you think will get you on the radio? What kind of music do you want to make? And that's still, that's still how I look at it. And the fact that we've been doing it so long, it's, it's almost liberating. It's almost liberating to be so old. Like, like, there's a feeling of like, who gives a shit? Like, let's just, let's just make music at this point. I've accepted my fate at, that I'm going to be like, that weird 75-year-old man that still makes music. Awesome. And maybe people will go, you know, that guy still makes records. They're actually okay. Like, that's my dream.
3: <laughs> oh, man, that's a good dream. That's such a good dream.
2: And I've kind of built my little world here. Like, we bought a house in Woodstock, and I have my little studio. I can just go to my little studio and work on my music for a few hours, and then I can, like, go back to our house. And I feel like, like I've worked I've worked for years and years just to get to get to the spot where like, no, I'm not a I'm not a massive rock star. But we we bought our house here and we're we're comfortable and we have our like little life, which is, however, humble is like more than I ever thought I would have. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky to be here. Like nobody's tapped me on the shoulder and said, you have to go get a job somewhere.
3: If I was a podcast producer, I'd probably be stepping in right now and saying, uh, "This has been a great talk, you guys, and that's a great conclusion True. to the talk." But I just want to ask you one more question before we get interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I ask you about falling down the stairs of your smile? Yeah, can you tell me anything about that song? I just love it so much. What's weird about
2: that was, um, I was trying to write in a new way. Like I, like I felt like I felt like I've I've always overwritten. Like I always thought like I'd write chords with too many songs with too many chords. And so that, it only has two chords. It yeah. just goes, it just go. I think it just goes like, like the verse is B to A, B to A. And I think the chorus is A to B, A to B. Uh, and when the bass line showed up, I thought, okay, th- you know, yeah, here, th- this is cool. And so I thought, okay, these, these two chords move and I've got the bass line. And then, and then I felt like I just started singing until, it sounded cool. Like I think it it had it had about fifteen or twenty melodies, and I just yeah. kept thinking. And I kept thinking, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And then finally, um, yeah, it worked. I wanted to cut it from the record, and I remember Colin, who was mixing, just turned around in his chair and went, "Are you kidding? This is the best <gasps> song on the record." And I was like, "I don't. know. I'm sorry, man. I don't know. <laughs> like, like, I I, I can't I, I can't I can't tell anymore." So.
3: Yeah, I was I was happy with the way that one came out. But, but yeah, it was it had a troubled history. It's got a lot of melodies and that there's overlapping stuff and the verses move in slightly unpredictable form. All of that feels right from my listening of, of the song. And I, I just love it. I think everybody who works in
2: music has certain things that are easy for them, you know. And for me, it's it's melody. Like like for me, it was it was easy yeah like you talk about, yeah, it does have a lot of melodies. It has about five or six different melodies, which I whittle down from like 15 or 20. Mm. and that can drive you to madness when you're like, yeah, my my song has 20 melodies. Do you all feel that way? like there's something there's something that is there a part that you think is your power alley like like the part that comes easy to you? I feel
0: like it, yeah melodies feels right for me like I, I don't I don't have a strong relationship with harmony really like the harmony is always usually just driven by the melody which since usually like often arrives first or if if, the, if there's like a riff that's over the top it's like it's easy for me to think about the melody like interplaying with the riff or something like that
2: whenever I meet songwriters uh, I like I'm always going so what do you start with you know like mm-hmm. you start with words do you start with melody it's a, it's a I, I start with melody definitely the words are tough i I think it would be so amazing be a songwriter It starts with the words i've written some songs with nico recently where she just gave me words and said will you write you know a song for this i was shocked at how easy it was like oh i've already got the words and then like two hours later i'd go here you go wow like here's a song you know because you've you've given me the hard part you've already given me the part that i struggle with do you ever try writing the lyrics first or
0: yeah i write the lyrics first. uh a lot. I used to do it a lot more. Now it feels like they're they're much more intertwined. But I use, but I still write like write, write, like just like stream of consciousness stuff. Mm-hmm. Um try and like write what feels like rhythmic words or something like that. And good rhymes. I like rhymes. Sometimes like the song feels like it like arrives like almost fully formed. Sometimes it's like messing around with words for ages. Sometimes it's like I know what the words are but need to figure out how to make them sound more interesting.
2: Do you want your songs to have a specific story, you know?
0: Sometimes, but I feel like the I'm not really a story songwriter, which like I really like story songs that f- feel like they have a narrative. Yeah. And like almost like characters and stuff like that, but I tend to just write like feelings songs <laughs> and like relationships yeah. songs. And um, yeah, I feel like I I know my lane.
2: <laughs> a lot of songs have lyrics that are just gibberish, you know, like like you know, like Jet by Wings or something. You know, it, it's meaningless. It's just it's just a bunch of cool bullshit. But hmm. when I, when I write songs like that, I feel like oh my god, like. Like, I feel like the emperor has no clothes. Like, like yeah. I just made it. I just made a song that's like, it's just a bunch of gibberish strung together. That sounds cool. But then I realize, but, but you love that stuff, you know? You love I Am The Walrus. Why can't you write I Am The Walrus? Definitely. I always wonder how other songwriters feel about that. You know, it's, it's hard for me to move past the kind of imposter syndrome while I'm doing it.
0: Maybe psychedelic drugs help.
2: <laughs> I, th- I think they do. I don't think alcohol does.
0: You see the connections and everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Very cool to talk to you too. I really like the record. Thank you. It's really
0: nice to meet, meet you to and talk, talk to you, you
2: too. Yeah, yeah. I we we love. I definitely want to get back to New Zealand very soon. Well, if God you ever do
0: get in touch. We'll
2: yeah we'll
0: show you a good time. We'll
3: roll out <laughs> the red carpet.
1: Thanks for listening to the talk House podcast, and thanks to AC Newman, Liz Stokes, and Jonathan Pierce for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts in our network, including Craig Finn's That's How I Remember It, How Long Gone, and Bjork's Sonic Symbolism. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.